Welcome to the Get Cyber Brazilian podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara, and today we're joined by Mark O'Hare, Mimecast CISO. Mark quotes the Beatles to describe his arrival into the CISO role. It's been a long and windy road. He started in computer science and law back in university, went over to sports science, and then boomeranged back into a contracting career in networking, IT, and security. He's worked in the UK, the US, the Cayman Islands, and has been in Australia now for nearly a decade. As Mimecast CISO, he's at the forefront of the challenges facing CISOs in public companies. In the episode, we talk about what keeps Mark awake at night when it comes to security, where and how he consumes the avalanche of information he needs to each day, what his wish would be for the cyber genie or if he had a magic wand, the relationship with the board and Exco, regulatory influence, finding and keeping the right people, and we finish with his one important thing to do per day recommendation. I've wanted to speak to Mark for some time now, so I really hope you enjoy the conversation. Over to the interview. Welcome to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. Today I'm joined by Mark O'Hare, CISO for Moncast. How are you going, Mark? I'm really good, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show today. Absolute pleasure. We've been talking about this for, <laughs> it feels like about a year. Um, and obviously with your role, you're, you're a fairly go- a hard guy to catch, so uh, very much appreciate you taking the time. No problem, it's, yeah. Glad that it's finally happening. Yeah, me, me too. How are you doing? You're based out of Melbourne, right? So you're part of the uh, the, the crazy times that is Victoria in COVID. That's right. Uh, we're uh, we're here down in in, in lockdown. Um, so uh, yeah, not leaving the home very much and uh, focusing on on work and the things we can do. Good times. So the the first thing we we pretty much start with uh, every episode is just really how people got to where they are today. And obviously, you've been CISO for Mimecast for some time now. Um, it'd be great to hear how you kind of got to that position, what your journey was into like cybersecurity. Yeah, sure. So uh, to quote a Beatles song, uh, it's been a long and windy road, really. Um, <laughs> I started, uh, so I started my university, um, degree in, in, uh, computer science and, and law. Um, but interest- interestingly, after the, uh, after the first year of doing that, uh, neither of those two grabbed me and, and I actually switched over to, to sports science. So my background, uh, at university, I did, uh, I did sports science and an honors in sports science following, uh, following that. Um, after university, uh, as, so I'm originally South African and as most South Africans did back in those days, we, uh, we would head over to the UK, uh, London typically to, to do a two year, um, sort of working holiday, um, uh, stint. So I did that, uh, um, along with many other South Africans and, and, uh, that was around 1997. So when I got there, it was, uh, you know, pre, um, Y2K bug and all of that sort of mm-hmm. Side of things. So the computer industry was booming and, um, I took the opportunity to actually, uh, do some, some, uh, IT courses. So I did the, you, you'll be familiar with the MCSE and, uh, Cisco. So the networking side of things, as well as, um, checkpoint on the, on the firewall side of things, did some of those courses just to, you know, get, as I didn't really have the experience fresh out of uni, just to, to, uh, get some certifications to help me get a foot in the door. Um, I then contracted in London from uh, 1997 to around about 2003, and that was in various roles, you know, starting in desktop support to again get some experience, um, but moving through into the server server support side of things. Um, but uh, you know, just shortly after 2000, I, I shifted more towards the networking and networking security side of things. 
so that that involved doing my my Cisco courses and and checkpoint courses and um, you know I think that was probably where I got my first taste of of uh, dedicated security on the sort of firewall side of things um, and the early web proxy and web security side of things. Hmm. So then in 2003, I got an opportunity to, to move to the Cayman Islands in the Caribbean. And I spent three years there, uh, in a, in a, one of the local banks, IT departments, um, you know, doing, doing all sorts of things again there from, from desktop server and networking, uh, networking support. It was a fairly small IT department. So, you know, we were, uh, well, I had to be a jack of all trades really. Um, that was a great experience for me. Um, you know, it was also my first, uh, permanent, Permanent role I'd contracted as most people did in, um, in, in the UK, um, prior to that. So, uh, following, um, Cayman, I moved back to the UK. That was around about 2007. Um, and, uh, interestingly worked for, um, LOCOG, which was the London Olympic Committee, um, because the, uh, Olympics were coming to, to London. I think it was 2012. And, uh, yeah, I was helping set up their, their networks and infrastructure. Um, so that was 2007. Early 2008, I got an opportunity to work for Mimecast, um, and, and joined the company. So I started in the London office. And not long after that, um, Mimecast decided to, um, open, well, they, they had already decided to open, uh, North American offices, but they, they, that was the point where they was actually sending people over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I moved from, from London, uh, to, to Boston to help set up the, the North American, um, operation there. Uh, initially I was, uh, director of, of technical operations. Um, you know, so looking after our, you know, the full stack from, from hardware through to operating systems and applications that uh, ran our customer services. Um, also looking after the co-location, so the data centers, power, cooling, all of that sort of stuff, um, making sure that was running. That obviously wasn't my responsibility to make it run. That was the co-location's responsibility. Um, <clears throat> but ensuring all of that stuff was running and monitoring all of that kind of, uh, kind of thing. It was a, it was a lot of fun setting up new offices and a new operation in a new, co- uh, country. And as we were, uh, you know, we started the landing party was fairly small. Uh, what was really nice uh, and, and very memorable about that period of time was, was just being able to get involved in all sorts of different things. So while I was director of technical operations, I also did all of the IT related stuff. I helped out in service delivery. I ran ingestions of, of customer data, you know, all sorts of things that in a larger organization, uh, far more siloed, certainly today in my own class, far, far more siloed and you wouldn't get that breadth of experience. Um, when you joined a company of our size. So that was interesting about joining what was essentially a startup office. Um, then in 2011, so, so 2008 to 2011 was in Boston. In 2011, um, I immigrate, I immigrated to Australia. Um, <clears throat> and at that point, I uh, couldn't do the director of technical operations role and shifted focus into more, um, specific security side of, of, of things. Uh, we had a CISO at the time, um, and I was the second employee in the security organization at that point. Um, that CISO then in 2012 or late 2011, somewhere around there, um, moved on from Mimecast, and uh, I took over as, as CISO um, at that point. So I've been CISO at Mimecast since about uh, 2012. Um, initially, it was just myself in the department. 
but now we are around about 25 people in the in the security team. Phenomenal. In, in terms of um, like the CISO role is a, a stressful one. I think it's pretty well understood. Last week's episode was was actually about CISO burnout, and we had a, an organizational psychologist, Jess Lee, on talking about stress in general and burnouts. And um, there, you know, it's a job that I don't think I'd be wired for. I think I'd I'd, I'd, I'd either end up in a in the Betty Ford clinic or yeah, so I just I don't know, I, I, you know that <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in terms of that, like, what are the things that keep you kind of awake at night, you know, with this, you, the responsibility that's on your shoulders is not small. So I, I suspect you maybe are awake at night, uh, worried about things. <laughs> yeah. Well, thankfully I'm a, I'm a decent sleeper. Uh, I certainly used to be. Um, but, uh, yeah, th- there are a couple of things that keep me awake at night. Um, really, we've spoken about this in some of our threat intel briefings, but, um, insider threats. I, I, I think that's a really hard thing to deal with. Um, that, you know, notoriously hard to, to detect an insider, um, and, and, and notoriously hard to prevent them, right? So detecting because they, to do their jobs, they need an awful lot of access and privileges if they're an administrator on the, on the platform. Um, and, and so you, you're entrusting a lot of power to, to your employees. Uh, you know, we saw with, uh, with Tesla recently, um, where one of their, uh, Russian employees, um, you know, a, a, another uh, Russian citizen, uh, attempted to, to bribe them to, uh, to plant, uh, malware in, in Tesla's organization. Um, thankfully the, the Tesla employee did the right thing and, and, you know, worked with Tesla's security team and eventually, um, eventually some of the, um, cybercrime organizations to, to shut that down. Um, but there, you know, it's reported that this person was offered, uh, you know, potentially up to a million dollars to, to plant this, uh, malware. It's, you know, that it's a, it's a lot of money and very tempting for, for, uh, for certain people to then follow through with that. So, so that is a, that is obviously a big problem. Now, uh, insider threats, they're not always malicious. Uh, accidents happen too. And, uh, you know, someone could change a firewall configuration and before your, um, you know, you may have some automation to, to detect firewall changes, but that may not kick in or someone may, may not see that alert in time. And just for the few minutes, uh, or potentially even hours that that's exposed to the internet, some really bad things can happen. So, so accidents can be a real problem too. Um, so yeah, for me, insider threats are probably the thing that I find the hardest to control and the thing that worries me the most. You know, infrastructure, we can, we can patch, we can test, we can fix. Um, but you don't always know what people are thinking. So, you know, that's a problem. The other thing that keeps me at night is, you know, companies like Mimecast who, who store valuable data, we, we, we become targets for, you know, sophisticated uh, cyber criminal groups and, and even nation states. Um, you know, we have seen other uh, companies that store valuable information um, being the targets of, of highly sophisticated attacks that have been attributed to very sophisticated uh, threat actors. And these threat actors, they have big budgets, a lot of time and some very smart resources on their hands. So, you know, those are the two things that keep me up at at night, there are obviously many other things that worry me, um, but I, I would I would go with those two. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny as you were describing the Tesla employee there. I've, I've listened to quite a few interviews with Elon Musk, and he's uh, 
like he's a pretty intense guy and I feel like if I was his employee I I you know the the opportunity to make a million dollars versus the wrath of Elon Musk I I probably would walk away from the money as well and he's uh he's he's quite intense yeah yeah well I I've not heard any reports about this but I suspect that Elon would have taken care of that uh you know the 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 uh the employee himself I mean that's that would have been a, a very difficult situation to to deal with i mean even whistleblowing yes. on that you potentially putting yourself in danger from, uh, from you know the um the organization that's trying to attack tesla so that person really went out on a limb and it's a very brave thing that uh you know that elon should be respecting and i'm sure yeah. he would yeah it's uh, yeah definitely kudos to that person so one of the things um i think you and i have kind of talked about over the over the years that we've uh, been working together is uh, really just the, the the level of change and how quickly all of this stuff moves. And as part of my job and, you know, the things that I've done over the years with Mimecast, I get to see because of RFP responses and various other kind of security assessments, um, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of the, the effort and the work that goes into um, securing our platform. But, you know, I know other SaaS uh, providers will do very, very similar stuff. Um, but one of the big things is just how quickly this stuff all moves and changes. And the just the sheer volume of new threats, um, different types of threats. You know what's kind of coming down the wire. Be very keen to hear where you where do you get your information from. Yeah, absolutely, Gar. Um, so as a CISO, I feel you need many different sources of information. There is no one place you can go to get it all. Um, and this is both <clears throat> internal and external uh, resources, as well as technical and anecdotal and you know, even news articles. So so just to give you a sort of summary of the places that me and my team will get information from. Um, so cyber threat intel services like uh, CrowdStrike's threat intel service uh, that we've subscribed to, uh, Recorded Futures, which uh, which is another threat intelligence service that um, that we've subscribed to. These give us uh, curated reports that are, are tailored to, to your own needs, your business's needs. You can input um, search terms and things that you would like to be um, alerted to if there is any threat intelligence related to these things. Um, it also can include new vulnerabilities related to the technology you're using, the new t- uh, tactics and, and techniques that adversaries are employing. Um, as I'm a CISSP, I also like ISC Squared's Info Security Professional magazine. Um, they have some great articles there. Um, there are tech news sites that report on anatomy of breaches too, uh, which give you very useful insight into, you know, what these, um, threat actors are actually doing and how they're, um, breaching organizations. Uh, I always feel it's, it's way better to learn from other people's mistakes rather than your own here. So, you know, reading up on, on how these breaches are, are happening, um, and, and, you know, what were the defensive mistakes that organizations made? Um, and then us making sure that we are not making those same mistakes. And that's also important to us. Uh, security thought leaders like Brian Krebs and Dr. Eric Cole also have some very interesting and useful content. Um, so listening to their podcasts or reading articles that they've penned, I think is also a great way of just upskilling and understanding what's going on and, and what our, our current security thought leaders are, are, are thinking and talking about. From an internal perspective, uh, you know, we have a couple of threat intelligence teams. Uh, so they, they bring information. Some of it's related to what our products are, are seeing and the intelligence that's generating. Um, some of our threat intelligence uh, resources are, um, you know, curating the recorded future and CrowdStrike threat intel and uh, making, you know, 
tuning out the noise, making sure that the threat intel coming through is is relevant um, to to us as an organization. Um, I, I think we're all in danger of being um, oversubscribed to to threat intelligence and and actually paralyzed by just the flood of information you've got. So having a threat intelligence team trim down that information and making it highly relevant for your organization makes you far more effective. Uh, we also have an offensive security team, which is really our, our, our penetration testers. So they're doing manual testing um, and they're bringing information to me about, you know, what vulnerabilities may exist inside our network, in our applications, um, either third-party applications or our own. Uh, we have a strategic security team and, they, you know, they're mapping our defenses against um, frameworks like uh, MITRE ATT&CK. Um, and, and so they can bring in, in intelligence and information to me to say, you know, we, we're, we're missing something here. This is where we need to focus uh, some, some more energy and effort uh, into defending ourselves. Um, and then products can help us as well. Uh, so our own um, brand exploit protection uh, can can give us an indication of of whether people are targeting us and you know trying to ex- exploit our brand um, and and something like Nessus. So just the uh, automated scanning of your environment for for vulnerabilities brings you the technical um, information that uh, that we as security practitioners can can rely on and and need to rely on. Yeah. So I, I think in in some I mean, there's a lot of tools that we use, but I think in summary that covers really the the, the focuses. In my mind, uh, I'm now visualizing you in like in the mornings with the Minari Report glove and you know a wall of screens in front of you with all these different sort of information sources and you're you know you're plucking things out of the air and the yeah, priority ignore. Um, is is that is there any version of truth in that, or is it is it a laptop screen? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we're uh, I'm certainly not as cool as uh, you know as some of the Hollywood actors, but. Um, but it, it, it's something similar to that, right? Uh, so while we don't have the, uh, the, the really geeky, um, techno screens and gloves and things like that, you know, we have dashboards and screens and, and, um, search engines, specific threat intel search engines that, uh, that we're using on a, on a daily basis. So yeah, uh, you know, I like to think uh, of myself like that, but I think I'm the only one. You'll always be Tom Cruise in my mind on your uh, on your high end Ducati, Mark. So yeah, if you um, here's a question. So if you had a uh, a genie or a magic wand, you know whatever sort of magical device, and you could sort of you know have one wish for cybersecurity, um, and maybe there's two parts to this. Maybe it's broadly for cybersecurity as a practice, um, and then you know kind of zoning in on your your kind of world. Um, so. What would your wishes be, or or your one wish, if they're both the same thing? Right. So, uh, you know, it it would be unfair and unrealistic to say something like make all technologies, you know, all technology systems, one hundred percent secure. You know, I wave my wand and they would suddenly become secure. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, <laughs> the more realistic and achievable answer, though, is you know, I'd I'd like the internet to act a little bit like our, well, a lot like our uh, our body's own immune systems. So. Okay. So the reality is, you know, someone's going to get sick, uh, and you know that's uh, in, in this analogy, someone's going to get hacked. But if we are all connected to a centralized immune system, as soon as that that centralized immune system figured out what had happened, how it happened, you know, it could then go and update all the internet connected systems, and and uh, we'd all have immunity against uh, that attack. Mm-hmm. So you know, you can imagine if if only one organization, or or maybe just a very small number of of organizations. Would ever get hacked, 
before all other organizations and entities became immune. It would then be very expensive for the, 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 the threat actors to be changing technology on a, a wide, wide scale, you know, after every successful attack. Um, this obviously, uh, we don't need a wand for this or a genie, it, um, but it, it does rely on better uh, collaboration by, by some of the industry giants like Microsoft and Apple, um, yep. you know, who have sort of tentacles into almost every endpoint um, globally and potentially in a matter of minutes through pushing out you know, uh, signatures and behavioral uh, detection updates um, can then protect these endpoints almost in real time. So, so I'm seeing this like a, like the immune system to our body's immune system for the internet. Yeah. Very cool. Um, it, it wouldn't it be amazing. Um, there's, there's so much, although we'd maybe be out of jobs is the only thing. So that part wouldn't be so good if everything was secure and safe. So, you know, partly, partly kind of. I think the central immune system still has a lot of work to do. And, you know, we'd maybe be, more coordinated around that and feeding information to that immune system so that in almost real time, we can protect all organizations. Everyone who's subscribed to this immune system, you know, the, the whole body. Yep. Rush, rushes to protect the, yeah, I get it. Um, yeah, interesting idea. Yeah, the way I look at it is, is we can't prevent 100% of breaches and, you know, it's a fool's errand to try to do that. Yep. It's how do we how do we um, figure out what happened, uh, put defenses in place, and push that out to every organization as quickly as possible. So we limit damage rather than prevent damage at all. And, and in a way, it takes care of a big problem, which is the supply chain issue. You know, where you're kind of reliant on um, partner organizations, vendors, and all of that kind of stuff. Where yeah, if that kind of global immunity was happening, um, a large part of that problem goes away too. Yes. Um, yeah, we we can we can dream. I don't know. Is there? Do you, do you think it's the kind of thing that we'll eventually get to? Uh, I think we will make our way towards it. Um, mm. You know, but you, you can't force organizations to subscribe to this either. To pull uh, the, the updates down or push information into this immune system. But I think, I think we will move towards that model. And, and I see this today through kind of the APIs that uh, organizations like ourselves or CrowdStrike or many other security organizations, security providers provide is that, you know, you can learn something from one of your systems and push it into another one. Um, yep. That gives you, it's a much smaller scale than I'm talking about. Um, at this point, but I think as we move towards that model, yes, that could that could become a thing, and I hope it does, uh, because I think that is a, a it's a it's a an effective way to to make the cost of attacking organizations incredibly high um, yep. when someone knows that it's it's a single use every you know they may work for six months on something and it's probably a single use attack uh, because as soon as people find out about how it was done. Um, everyone's everyone's automatically protected. Yep, I get you. And, and yeah, you know, while I take your point that it's a a small step, you know, the, the kind of point to point solution integrations and threat intel and, and sort of telemetry sharing, the logic is the same, right? I mean, it's just an extension of the same idea, but in you know, in a, in a kind of global and collaborative scale, it's it's sort of maybe naively me saying thinking this, but like it feels like technically it's possible. To your point, it's just more of a people problem. Correct, correct, and it's you know, we're uh, all these organ all organization, all these security organizations need to turn a profit. Um, and sometimes working together, they see that as, you know, um, 
you know, someone else eating their lunch. Um, and, and so that can, that can be a problem. But, uh, you know, so, if, so there's sometimes reasons, uh, you know, uh, financial reasons not to work together, um, which is going to, to make this, uh, you know, I don't know, a larger scale immunity harder to achieve. That's sort of why I feel like it's the giants that need to do this. Um, the, yep. the Microsofts and, and the Apples, um, because they can reach, they can reach everywhere. They don't have to coordinate with a lot of other organizations to share data. They have the, they have the data or the, um, you know, that their operating system is on every single, pretty much every single endpoint. Um, yep. Yeah, it is. It's a phenomenal reach that they have these days. Going to pivot a little bit, maybe, and um, I wouldn't mind getting your thoughts on how you've sort of perceived the, call it, I don't know, the importance of cybersecurity, or you know, the level of attention it gets from Exco's leadership teams within organizations. Um, obviously, you know, you're you're in Mimecast, but I, I suspect you are connected to many peers in many other organizations, and can have a, a pretty good finger on the pulse in terms of. Um, yeah, the visibility or the the level of importance that's given to cybersecurity. My suspicion is it is getting better and it's changing a lot. Um, but I'd, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Gar. I mean, I see that in our in our organization as well as uh, customers um, and prospects that I talk to or other CISOs that I I talk to. So um, you know, these days, I think in the in the in the fairly distant past, certainly at Mimecast, you know, you, as a security organization, you, you operated a little bit in a, in a silo. Um, and, you know, the, the, the C level or the executives just expected you were getting the, the job done and didn't ask a lot of questions. They probably didn't even know what questions to ask, to be fair. Yep. Um, but t- today, you know, we're getting questions from the boards. So boards want mm-hmm. updates on, on your security. Um, cybersecurity has hit most companies' risk registers, um, and, and organizations are, are now highly aware that breaches can impact bottom line in a really big way, as well as the organization's, you know, reputation. And, and so cybersecurity, um, amongst the executives is, is now far more of a focus. Um, I saw something interesting from Gartner recently, and that's, uh, that, C-level employees may even be held, CEOs they were calling out and CISOs, uh, may even be held liable for cybersecurity mm-hmm. negligence, um, and could potentially do jail time depending on, you know, depending on the level of negligence and, and the impact of the breach, um, that happened. And while I don't want anyone to end up in jail, I think you need those sorts of repercussions and, you know, serious consequences for people really to, to, to take note and give cybersecurity um, the kind of focus that it needs in 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 many organisations. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm seeing far more questions, far more interaction from from the executives and and C level people in in organisations today. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So in a completely unrelated uh, thing, in a way, I'm sort of prepping for a talk I'm I'm doing. And um, one of the things I saw yesterday was that in the S&P 500, uh, about 84% of the value is locked up in intangible assets. So it's things like IP, uh, customer relationships, but also data. So customer lists, databases, and all of that kind of stuff. So um, they, you know, they, they were comparing that to the mid 70s, I suppose, when it was almost flipped the other way, where you know the value of an organization was the buildings you owned and the, uh, you know, the machines, the yeah, yeah. So it's it's definitely 
Um, it makes sense to me, I suppose, at a sort of an academic level, why that stuff has um, changed. How does that, like for you with that sort of elevation in terms of importance, like how does that affect your day-to-day -day or the planning that you do in terms of that business visibility, the board questions, you know, that, that level? Um, so to be honest, we don't take, uh, we, we, we already on the operational side, we are already doing everything that we can. Yep. So it's not like we can run any faster. Um, we are, you know, we, we're going as, as hard and fast as we can at this each and every day to prevent an attack from being successful. However, what it, ha the, the changes that it has really made, um, is, is the transparency of the security program. Um, so it's made that far more important because executives now are interested in, in seeing how well the, sec the cybersecurity program is doing and keeping mm -hmm. up to date with the, you know, they want to keep up to date with the changing threat and, and risk landscape. And I mentioned earlier, you know, back in the day, I think, uh, the, the boards and executives didn't actually know which questions to ask, what questions to ask. And today, there's far more understanding um, amongst the C-level and executives around um, uh, data breaches and, and the, the repercussions, the impacts to organizations. You know, we've seen so many examples of, of organizations either that have not recovered from a breach or have taken many years to recover from a breach. Um, so executives are learning uh, what, what are the right questions to ask? What do they need to see? Um, in, in order to understand how effective and well-run the cybersecurity program is in their organization. So at, at Mindcast, we, you know, we achieve this through uh, monthly security committee meetings where we have our CEO, head of legal, head of engineering, you know, uh, many executive level employees in it. And we discuss our current you know, risk levels, how we're tracking on fixing vulnerabilities that we've identified, you know, what are our unremediated vulnerabilities and when will they be fixed and making sure that um, these things are being fixed, these vulnerabilities are being fixed within our own internal SLAs. Um, so, yeah, it's certainly put more focus on providing evidence. It's kind of the trust, but verify even your own security team, make sure that they are you know, doing the right things and looking in the right places and have the right um, detections and controls in place. Yeah, so good to have that transparency. You you sort of mentioned maybe something that's a little bit related, but um, you know, the idea of uh, C levels or P directors um, being on the hook personally. Um, you know, sort of they have obviously fiduciary responsibilities in those roles, and then more and more the link between cyber and, and sort of the money side of things, I think is a stronger link. So, you know, they're doing potentially time, but they're also getting fines and, you know, getting lawsuits uh, against them. Um, is there is there something going on for you as a CISO in terms of like regulations, either locally here in sort of Australia, New Zealand, or globally, that sort of plays into maybe things that you've changed or stuff that you have to think about that you didn't have to think about last year or five years ago? Uh, yes, for sure. Um, my yeah. role being global, I will say there's, you know, local Australian, uh, regulations, uh, here and also, you know, global regulations or legislation. So, you know, GDPR was, you know, it's a big one. Um, um, and, and as we operate in many regions and, and need to know what our responsibility in those regions are, we actually have a legal team who helps with this area. So that legal team has a, a contract component in it and an assurance risk and control team um, that work with identifying what the, the requirements or, or, or local legislations in each area we operate in are. 
um, and then ensure that we have the right people, process, and technology in place to, you know, to deal with those regulations. Some of them is some of it comes down to to even breach reporting. You've got to make sure you, in advance, um, have a, a, a breach reporting policy and process in place in, in case you do unfortunately get get breached. So. Also, due to our, our pretty robust certification program, you know, we, it includes ISO 27001, 27018, 22301, SOC 2 Type 2, IRAP for Australia, FedRAMP for the US. You know, we, we have found that by and large, we're actually through those certifications, we, we're already doing all the things that these local and, and global, um, legislations or requirements require us to do. So, Actually, our, our certification program has certainly helped there, and many of these things are framed around um, common certifications. Uh, so it's it's certainly helped us uh, by you know us getting on the front foot there with the certification side of things. That has meant we're also by and large compliant with with any legislation currently existing or, or new that may come out. So uh, maybe a little side question here in terms of those certifications, and um, you know having had. Sort of reasonable conversations with our AORC team on how they kind of approach this stuff, and you know the, the way they can map common controls across different certifications, and you know how much overlap there is between you know different um, whatever you want to call them, like types of certifications that kind of achieve the same thing, and some are local, and um, you know in the US, I know there's um, some conversations happening around state level privacy laws and how onerous that is on you know, organizations that are operating nationally in America having to comply with all these different state legislations versus, you know, kind of unifying into something simple for the US. But I would say there's a question here around the value for just one single global certification that, you know, the the kind of superset of them all so that rather than doing, you know, you've, you've listed many, many certifications there, you know, that there's one that's recognized around the world that does the job. If you see it, you kind of know that you're done. You don't have to go for the regional or local ones. Do you think we'll ever get to that? Or is there a reason why that, that doesn't work? Yeah, I, I suspect we won't ever get to, to that point. Uh, in fact, I, I suspect we'll diverge from that. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, but it, it would be a nice, it would be a nice thing to have, right? Have one common set of controls, but, there are um, there are technologies today or services that help you um, map across all of these different uh, certifications and um, you know, I think using using that where you have your sort of single pane of glass or single input um, to to what you're doing um, about a particular control and then that tells you you know how does that how does that help you on the the SOC two type side of things or you know on the the NIST CSF side of things or the ISO side of things. Um, you know, so I think uh, some sort of service that ties that all together is very helpful in that area. Um, yeah, but I, I, I don't suspect that we'll ever see a, a single framework that will be globally adopted, unfortunately. It's the story of humanity, isn't it? It's uh, you know, you, you only have to look at electricity and how many different types of plugs there are, there are around the world and voltages and yeah, we're, we're never going to get there. That's uh, I think safe to say. The the other side of um, like one of the things you'd obviously have to think about fairly consistently is people and you know building teams, getting the right people, you know filling out roles and um, it's talked about quite a lot in the industry. You know the 
skill shortage, um, you know, where to get talent from. What's your approach there? Like, how do you how do you fill the how the, do you fill your team with the you know the right people within reasonable amounts of time? Yeah. Uh, so this has very much been a challenge for my security organization, um, and it does actually depend uh, a bit on the role. Uh, so for example, um, our offensive security. So, so the penetration testers that we hire, um, those, you know, there's a very small pool of, of, of highly talented penetration testers that are currently looking for work. Most of them already have work. Um, and when they, when they, um, are looking for roles, they get snapped up really, really quickly. So that's been an area that has been extremely hard for us to, to hire into. Um, some of the other roles like, uh, you know, our security operations center, we do find it a little bit easier to, to fill those and especially roles where there are or areas where there are some junior roles. We can bring people in and say they don't have to be highly skilled, um, and highly experienced, experienced already. And, and, you know, we'll bring them in and we'll train them up and give them that, uh, give them that experience. Those are, those are the air, easier areas for us to, to recruit into. Um, you know, and we can recruit on aptitude rather than, uh, experience and, um, yep. and existing, existing skill. Uh, but you know, for a penetration tester, you can't take someone with no experience and just put them in front of a terminal and ask them to start hacking. Uh, that's just not gonna, that's not gonna happen. Um, so that's definitely the area where we've had more challenges. Uh, what has changed a little bit for us is thankfully Minecast has a, a good reputation in the security world. And so that's made it more attractive um, for for um, uh, security engineers, um, analysts, and architects to to join our organization. So certainly finding it easier these days to to attract attention. Uh, nowadays, nowadays the challenge is around retaining them. You know, you mm. once these once your um, employees have a have a good level of skill, um, and now they've got some good experience. You know, they become very attractive in the marketplace because of this uh, skill shortage we, we are speaking about and, and organizations will throw a lot of money at them. And it's, you know, it's highly attractive to, um, to your employees. So, so really we have to focus a lot on, on uh, retaining existing resources. Yeah, I get you. So my, my dreams, you've just dashed my dreams of becoming potentially a pen tester because I thought you just had to download a VM of Kali Linux and, you know, away you go. And it sounds like there's more to it than that. Damn it. I'll have to, I'll have to. We'll start you in the stock, uh, you know, okay. level one, and then we'll build you up. In making the tea for the people doing the real, the, the real work, I'm guessing, and bringing them sandwiches when they're hungry uh, is probably. There's a, there's a lot of fun to be had and, you know, level one security learning about what uh, the defenders do, what the attackers do. Uh, it's, you yeah. know, it's a fascinating area to to get into and and the recruits that we bring on um in that area i, I think they really enjoy it yeah uh, sounds sounds good and um, we're we're kind of rapidly approaching time here um i think maybe maybe the last question um the one to end on um is maybe the idea like if there's one sort of important thing or something that you feel is very important that you do on a day-to-day -day basis as a cyber leader um like what would that be anything you could share with the audience um, yeah, so a couple of things, and they're generally just reminders to myself. Um, first one is assume positive intent. So when you're dealing with people and, and there's been an, an incident, uh, you know, not to, uh, assume that whoever did it, did it intentionally. Um, you know, 
first assume positive intent with things. Um, and then um, the other thing that I, I try to remind myself about and my team is that people outside of my security team have different priorities to mine and, and, and my team. And I need to take time to to listen to their side of things and to take time to explain my side of things so they understand why I'm asking them to do something or to stop doing something. Um, I think it's extremely important to realize that uh, secure, while security is my main priority, um, you know, if I'm working with our engineering teams or IT teams, they have different priorities. And I do have to justify why something of mine may take precedence over one of their priorities or slot it in the right place in their priorities. So those, those are the two things. Um, I feel you get, you get the most out of people and, and teams you, you work with by co- collaborating and being respectful to them rather than trying to steamroll them. Yep. And those two, two things help me do that better. So uh, Dr. Kate Jerome, who's been on the, the podcast to works out of the uh, University of Adelaide made that point around uh, culture and how important that is when a breach or a bad thing happens. Um, and it sounds like, you know, assume positive intent is kind of a version of that where is there some element of people, like if you if you would trust that there is positive intent, um, they will be more likely to be honest about what has happened rather than, as you say, going in aggressively and they'll just shut down. They won't tell you what really happened. They'll pretend they didn't I don't know, open the file or click on the link and, you know, you don't really get to figure out what happened because they're embarrassed or they feel like they'll get scolded. Correct. And sometimes we haven't done our jobs and trained them properly. And so, you know, how would they know how to behave uh, appropriately um, in, in certain scenarios? You know, you want to cover that all off in awareness training and onboarding and, you know, various other components to your cyber security um, program for your, you know, to, to educate your, to educate your staff. Um, but I think, you know, you want to have an approachable security team because like you say, if people are hiding things, People make mistakes, right? We, we all make mistakes. And if they feel that they have to hide the, hide these mistakes from the security team, then you have a real problem. And I, I feel at Mimecast, we've, for the most part, got that culture right. We get a lot of, you know, we get a lot of um, reports from our users saying, you know, I, I received this email. I clicked on the link. I didn't input my credentials, but can you help me? You know, can you just make sure that I didn't, um, I didn't do anything wrong here that may jeopardize me or the organization? Um, and, and hearing that from our staff is, is very encouraging, um, having that sort of open door to, for them to come and talk about mistakes they may have made and, and then have us help them um, sort that out. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Mark, we've, we've certainly kind of run over time a little bit here. So I really just want to thank you. I know you've got a, a lot on and given your global role, you tend to have um, yeah, fairly long hours. So not lost on me that you've taken the time out to talk to us. So yeah, very much appreciate it. No, great pleasure, Guy, and covered off some good topics there. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Cheers. Thanks again so much to Mark for taking the time out for that conversation. It's always so good to speak to somebody on the front lines. As always, thank you for listening to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. Do get into the back catalog. So much content in there and subscribe, like, share, let your friends know, and let us know of people you want interviewed or topics you want us to cover. For now, keep safe, and I look forward to catching you on the next episode.